You know, I think you're all aware that uh, I took Marilyn on a rather lengthy uh, motorcycle trip this uh, past fall, uh, a little longer than she probably would have liked, not near as long as I would like. Uh, but sometimes we start out on a journey that takes a lot longer than we anticipate. And how would you like it if you started out on what you thought was going to be an 11-day adventure, 11-day hike through the wilderness, and have it turn into a campout that lasts for over 40 years? Now, it wasn't that bad, was it, honey? Well, maybe it was. I don't know. <laughs> But, you know, this actually did, did happen. Uh, the writer of Hebrews uses this adventure from the Old Testament to encourage us to hold fast. Even when things develop, we don't fully anticipate. He wants us to hold fast to Jesus. He wants us to learn from the past and he wants us to hold fast today. Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. We're ready for chapter 3. We begin with the first six verses where we are told to hold fast. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We are called to hold fast our confidence, and the boast of our hope firm to the end. And that confidence is centered in a person, the greatest person of all. One who, as we've already seen in Hebrews, is greater than the prophets and greater than the angels. And the author addressing us as holy brethren, a family set apart from the world, and partakers of a holy calling, those who have responded to the call that came from heaven and leads us to heaven, he exhorts us to consider Jesus. He wants us to really think about him, to give serious consideration to him, to ponder him. He wants us to understand who he is. And what he's done. After all, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, this is the only time Jesus is referred to as an apostle. 
but it's very appropriate. As the apostle, he was the one chosen and sent with the full authority of God the Father. He represented God in everything, and that's what an apostle does. Jesus had his apostles, and here Jesus is called the apostle of God. He's also our high priest. Now, in Latin, there's a word for priest that describes very well the work of a priest. It's a word that means bridge builder. Jesus is not only the one sent from God, but he's also the one who bridges the gulf that separated us from God. Now, we recognize that, if, if not in those specific terms, when we confess Jesus as the Son of God and our Savior. Well, the author then moves to compare Jesus with Moses. And while that might seem anticlimatical to us, after already showing Jesus to be superior to the prophets and the angels, it certainly wasn't anticlimatical to the Jewish Christians of the author's day. You know, Moses was the one to whom God had given the law, and that set him above all others. In fact, a second century Jewish rabbi commenting on the passage from Numbers to which our author is referring when he says Moses was faithful in all his house said, God calls Moses faithful in all his house and thereby he ranked him higher than the ministering angels themselves. Moses was held in the highest of regard. And this high regard for Moses can even be felt in a reading of the New Testament, for he's mentioned there a total of 80 times more than any other Old Testament personality. Besides, if you recall, the immediate problem that the author of this letter was addressing was that under pressure of persecution, some Christians were reverting back to Judaism. They were going back to the law as given by Moses. And so the author needs to make a strong point, but he doesn't want to disparage Moses, so he simply moves to show that Jesus is superior even to Moses. And he begins by stating that just like Moses, Jesus had been faithful in all things pertaining to the house of God. Now, by his house, our author is referring to the household of God, the people of God, the children of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And the point he begins with is that both Jesus and Moses were faithful in fulfilling their roles in the house of God. But then he quickly points out a significant difference. Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses because he is the builder of the house, while Moses was merely a part of the house. And while a beautiful house is indeed held in high esteem, the builder is held in even higher esteem. And uh, that's why even after 34 years, whenever someone mentions that they like our home, I managed to tell them that I built it myself. You know, more honor goes to the builder of something than to what was built. Well, the builder 
of the house of God is Jesus. He is the apostle and high priest who makes it possible for men to become part of the house of God. He's the designer and builder of the house. In fact, as God, he is the builder of everything. So surely he has more honor than the grandest of all his creations, including men of the highest stature, such as Moses. Besides, Moses was actually a servant in God's house, nothing more. Now, he was a special servant, and the word used indicates that. This is the only time this particular word for servant is used in the New Testament and refers to someone who willingly offers honorable service to another. But he was still just a servant. He did what he was told to do. He said what he was told to say. But he did not have the last word from God. He himself made it clear that a final word was yet to come. And Jesus is that final word. He's God's final word to humanity. We've already looked at that in the first passage from the study. Jesus is the Son set with absolute authority over the house he built. And it is to him that we must hold fast. Our confidence and our hope are grounded in Jesus. And if we let loose of him, we have nothing. Now, that's not to say that if we sin or we stumble or we lose sight of him for a time, that we lose everything. You know, the grace of God covers the sins of those who continue to trust in Jesus. But if we stop trusting in Christ, if we don't hold fast to him, firm to the end, we can lose the promise we once had. Just as the Israelites lost the rest they had been promised when they began the journey through the wilderness. We therefore need to learn from the past. Verses 11, or 7 through 11, and then we're going to jump 15 to 19. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him? When they had heard, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. 
The author here echoes a warning given in the 95th Psalm concerning the kind of unbelief that characterized the children of Israel in the wilderness. And since the Holy Spirit was the true author of the warning, he credits it to him and quotes him, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, I find it very interesting that what is quoted here is the last half of the 95th Psalm. And the first half has to do with praise and worship, as we already noticed this morning. But I want to read it again for you. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand or his land. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. There's apparently a relationship between praise and worship and a hard heart. Because when you stop singing for joy to the Lord and stop coming before his presence with thanksgiving, your heart hardens. You begin to take him for granted. You lose your desire to kneel before him and instead begin making demands of him. You become like the Israelites who provoked God by complaining at Rephidim and threatened to revolt against Moses because they had no water to drink. Now, it might seem that having no water would justify a complaint. You know, Anna was complaining last night. I'd given her some popcorn. And Grandpa's too cheap to buy bottled water. So she was complaining all the way home. Well, the children of Israel complained. They didn't have water. And again, you'd think, well, that, that makes sense. But it didn't. Because God had already miraculously delivered them from the hands of their oppressors. He was personally guiding them with a cloud by day and fire by night into the promised land. It should have been obvious that such a God would not allow his people to die of thirst. They may have been a little thirsty, but they weren't dying of thirst. But they forgot. He was the God in whose hands are the depths of the earth and the mountains and the sea. They failed to worship him as God of all and therefore lost sight of who he was. And once they lost sight of who was leading them, all they could see was their problems. They were thirsty, so they threatened revolt. They got tired of manna, so they grumbled. They were afraid of the giants who inhabited the land God promised to give them, so they chose to stay in the wilderness instead. 
over and over again. For 40 years, they tried the patience of God. They provoked him, in effect, calling him a liar, saying he wouldn't do what he said he was going to do, saying he wouldn't take care of them. And finally, because of their lack of trust, he swore they would not enter into his rest, the land flowing with milk and honey he had promised to give them. And he let them die in the wilderness. That should serve as a warning to us, a warning to hold fast today. Verses 12 through 14. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have become partakers of Christ, for we have become partakers of Christ, if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. Now, what is an evil, unbelieving heart? Well, I don't think it's so much a heart that doesn't believe in God as it is one that does believe in God, but doesn't believe he'll do what he says he'll do. It's a heart characterized by the kind of unbelief that doesn't question God's ability to do something, but does question his willingness to do it. That, I think, is the most insidious kind of unbelief. The children of Israel believed in God. They just didn't believe him. They didn't believe he'd do what he said he would do. Now, we don't want to believe he's going to do something he never promised to do and call that belief in God. But we certainly should believe he'll do what he says he will do. They didn't believe him. And that kind of unbelief is deadly for a believer. That's the kind of unbelief that can cause even a Christian to fall away from the living God. And don't kid yourself. It is possible to do just that. It's possible to fall away from a living God. Many of Jesus' parables pointed out the danger of apostasy, of falling away. And Hebrews is going to warn us time and again to hold fast, to persevere, unless we shrink back to destruction and lose what has been promised to us. We must never forget that the promises of God are always conditional. They're conditioned upon our faith and obedience. Now, again, that does not mean we earn our reward by obedience, only that we demonstrate our faith by our obedience. 
The Israelites lost the promise to enter rest because they lost faith in God and were disobedient. They failed to trust God. When he said, the land is yours, they said, no thanks. We don't believe you're going to give it to us. So we'll just stay here. It's safer that way. That, my friend, is an unbelieving heart. And sad to say, it didn't become extinct when thousands of bodies that housed such hearts fell in the wilderness. It's still with us today. That's why we have to encourage one another day after day. That's why we have to keep reminding one another that God is true to his word, that he'll do what he says he will do. He will meet our needs. If we don't encourage one another and keep that trust alive, the deceitfulness of sin will harden us and we'll stop believing As the pressures build and the problems pile up, we'll stop praising and worshiping God. And then we'll lose focus of who he is and what he's done. And before long, we'll begin to doubt that he loves us enough to see us through. We'll still believe that God is God and that God is all-powerful, but we'll lose faith in his willingness to do anything for us and to do what he's promised to do. We'll let go of the assurance we once had. We'll lose our confidence in God and we'll run the risk of dying in the wilderness of unbelief and disobedience. But it doesn't have to happen. Not today. Not today. Because as long as it is still today, we can hold fast. And that's all our Lord asks of us. Trust me today, he says. Don't worry about tomorrow. Trust me today. And we can do that, can't we? We can trust him today. We can hold fast Today, it's when we start worrying about tomorrow, the things start falling apart. That's why Jesus said, today, today, trust me, today. And the amazing thing about trusting Jesus today is that if we will always do it, we will have held fast to the end. We do it one day at a time. So let's hold fast today. And let's encourage one another. You can hang in there today, my brother. You can be strong today, my sister. Focus on today. Today. Let's surrender our worries and anxieties and problems and hardships along with ourselves 
to Christ. As long as it is still called today. If we'll do that, we will be able to hold fast, firm to the end. If you need to make a public commitment to holding fast to Jesus in faith today, I invite you to come today.